Now, Father, we come once again to this short letter that Paul wrote to Timothy and to us by the inspiration of your Spirit. And we believe that these words were not only for the church of Ephesus and for Timothy, but they are for Calvary Bible Church. And so we long to hear your word, Father, and we pray that your Spirit would come and, uh, and take your word and use it as a two-edged sword to divide our hearts, to divide the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, and to cause us to be more like Christ Jesus in this world. And thank you that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father by, except by him, no matter what the world says. He is our only hope, he is the only truth, and he is our only God. And so we praise you. Help us, Father, to see that more clearly today and to see how it should affect our lives in this world. And may you use us, Father, to bring others to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, to the praise of your glory, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I know you're comfortably seated, but if you wouldn't mind standing with me again, out of reverence for God's word, let's stand and look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and these last few verses of this chapter. 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. Paul writes to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed we confess it's the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up to glory. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you may be seated. This passage of Scripture is about the greatest mystery story ever told. Everybody likes a good mystery. I was thinking this week about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who became a world-renowned author in 1887 when he, re he released his first of four famous novels. They were all detective stories and murder mysteries, the, final, or the first of which was released under the title A Study in Scarlet, a story that marked the appearance for the first time of a character by the name of Sherlock Holmes. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think mystery stories, I think Sherlock Holmes. But there are many other famous mystery stories, some of them worthy literature, perhaps others not. Many a young reader has cut his or her teeth relishing the mysteries of the Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew, maybe not high literature, but <laughs> mystery nonetheless. It's just about... There's just something about the whodunit genre of literature that draws people from all walks of life to find them compelling. And even today, television programming and the movie theaters are full of mystery stories. In fact, they're producing them as fast as they can be written, it seems. And of course, most mystery stories are fictitious. They contain characters that are the product of a fertile imagination of its author, but the best mystery stories are the true ones. And the one that Paul references here in our text this morning is the truest and most exciting, world-changing, life-altering, engaging, and profoundly reformational in our time. And it is the mystery of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In our passage this morning, there are two mysteries, actually, that the Apostle Paul touches on. The first we might call the mystery of truth, and the second, the mystery of godliness. Let's look at the first one for a few minutes, shall we? The mystery of truth. Now, if you know anything about literature, you understand that every story has a problem that has to be resolved. If there doesn't appear to be a problem in the story, then it's really not a story. It's a documentary or it's an encyclopedia. But it's not a story. Every story has a problem that has to be resolved. In spy mysteries, the problem is figuring out how one man can possibly undermine an evil government power. Or maybe how a good government can track down and capture an evil spy. 
In every mystery, um, truth in, in, the minist- in the mystery that Paul is addressing, truth is really the issue. How can we know what is true or whether there is such a thing as truth at all? Ours is the only generation who has, at least in recent years, who has really asked that truth. In pre-modern times, it wasn't that way. Even in modern times, it wasn't that way. We'll look at that in just a minute. But in our day, the big question is, I mean, is there any truth? Can anybody discern what is really true? This is just about the most relevant mystery of our time. We live in an age that is often called post-modern times. The previous age was called modern, the modern era. It was a time when science was making all kinds of discoveries and explaining things that were previously mysterious and untenable for even the best minds. For example, in the 1800s, Louis Pasteur discovered invisible little things that were were not available to be seen by the naked eye, and he called them germs. And there are a lot of germs in church these days. (laughs) He figured out that germs were the source of smallpox, which was a really big deal in his day. And no one believed him at first, but after much scientific experimentation, it led him to develop a vaccine for smallpox, which then uh, took those germs and produced a healing quality that was able, or at least an inoculating quality, that was able to protect people and livestock. Not all people. That's how Jonathan Edwards died. He was vaccinated by one of Louis Pasteur's medications, and he was killed by it. Nevertheless, most of the time, then the vaccinations work. We don't use live vaccinations very much anymore. If you got the flu shot, that probably wasn't a live vaccination. But all of that began with Louis Pasteur during the modern era. And you might not know this, but it wasn't until the early 1900s that science was able to actually cure a sick person, person of an infectious disease. There was no such thing as a medicine that could cure before 1902. When they came up with a cure for the flu, which was decimating the world like a plague. And this also was brought about by scientific experimentation. And by this time, uh, people had already begun to believe that uh, it was really just a matter of time before all truth could be discovered. All truth. But it didn't quite work out that way. In the realm of ethics and morality, scientific experimentation, the scientific method proved useless. Moral truth was determined by religion. But in that day, people began to doubt religion. They began rejecting religion as a a reliable source of truth. When I was a boy in the 1960s, authority of every kind was being sidelined. The motto of the younger generation, what was known as the hippie generation and in my early, early years, their motto was question authority. And it didn't take long before their motto became reject authority. And with the rejection of authority came a rejection of the very notion of truth. Since it seemed no authority could be trusted, then absolute truth must not even exist. What resulted was a historical slide into moral relativism which says that truth is whatever is true for you. And truth is whatever is true for me. I have my truth, you have your truth. I'm okay, you're okay. Famous book in the day. You may believe homosexuality is wrong. I believe homosexuality is right and normal. I mean, not me, but... (laughs) (laughs) My truth is just as true as your truth, because in the end of the day... There really is no such thing as truth, not ultimate truth, not guiding truth, not absolute truth. How can anyone justify the killing of unborn babies in the mother's womb, you may ask? To you, that seems ludicrous. How can homosexuality be branded as normal? How can there be a a doctor who can look at a healthy newborn and be unable to declare whether it is a boy or girl? That's easy. If you understand the math, 
all you have to do is remove truth from the equation. And then anything can be anything, no matter what it is or isn't, empirically speaking. Once truth is out, humans can live however they please and claim the moral high ground. And that's what we see in Romans 1, right? You throw the truth out, and God gives you over to what you really want. And that is the judgment of God. Perhaps a historical overview would help. We might say that pre-modern times, in pre-modern times, people believed that religion was the source of faith. I'm sorry, the source of truth. In modern times, people believe science was the source of all truth. In post-modern times, however, many had given up almost entirely on the notion of truth. But within the heart of every man, the Word of God tells us, eternity is written. We know instinctively, just as a Canadian Goose knows when it's born that it has to fly south for the winter. We know that there is truth. And life then becomes a quest for that truth. There simply has to be something that gives meaning and direction to life. But for so many, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. It's the mystery of truth, or so it seems. And practically speaking, in our day, people seek the truth by various, in various places, They want to find truth and meaning in human reason. They want to find truth and meaning in achievement and personal success. Many look for it in social justice and environmental activism. Some have sought it in drugs and alcohol and personal pleasure. A few think they found it in a kind of esoteric cosmic consciousness declaring themselves to God, but I think most of them have left the planet. Truth remains a mystery to our world, and more and more so, more and more so. You walk out onto the streets today and you look around, maybe one out of a hundred, maybe one out of a thousand believes in truth. But this really isn't something new. This is not something new with our age. There's actually nothing new here. The Romans were skeptical about absolute truth. You remember at Jesus' trial, Pontius Pilate Jesus was speaking with Pontius Pilate, and he said this, I have come into the world to bear witness of the, what? The truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to me, to which Pilate skeptically demurred, what is truth? He wasn't asking a question. He wasn't seeking to learn. He had given up on the idea. To Pilate, truth was a mystery. In Paul's day, the the Athenians that is, people who lived in Athens, the leaders of Athens, created thousands of carved idols representing their so-called gods. They even had a monument dedicated to the unknown god, just in case they missed anybody. And the reality is they didn't know if they missed anybody or not. And this is all evidence that even to the Greek philosophers of the day, truth was a mystery. No, No wonder they spent so much time talking about it coming up with new ideas. So when Paul came on the scene and went to the Agropolis, those guys sat there day after day after day talking about whatever is new, whatever is a new philosophy, a new way of thinking about things. Truth was relative. Truth was undiscernible. Truth was a mystery. But it's not as though the mystery of truth is difficult to solve. The truth has always been available to anyone who has ears to hear and eyes to see. In a heart that's willing to embrace, Proverbs 30, verse 5 declares, Every word of God is true. And to those who trust in it, it is a lamp to their feet and a light to their path. Psalm 119, 105. And Jesus prayed to the Father on behalf of his people as follows. He says, Father, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. Beloved, this is why the church, this is why the church is so important in our time. Let me say it again. And this isn't even popular among Christians anymore. This is why the church is so important in our day. In the darkness of a culture that is dismissed and condemn the very thing that it needs most. There stands the church, 
holding, as it were, the blazing beacon of the word of God, the unshakable truth, the revelation of eternal truth brought to man by the Holy Spirit from the very mouth of God. This is the purpose of the church. And notice how Paul speaks of the church here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we've looked at this verse probably three times in this study already, but let's just be a little more specific. He says, I hope to come to you soon, Timothy, but this is verse 14. I'm writing so that I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. This is what the church is. Notice how Paul speaks of the church. We are the household of God. We are the household of God. What does that mean? Well, if you dig around in the Old Testament, you'll find the word household is used all over the place. A household would include not just mother, father, and kids, but it would be mom and dad, kids, grandkids, servants, in-laws. They all lived together. They shared the same property, same farms, same, they just pitched their tents next to each other. It included also in-laws and those who were adopted. And the church is like that. The church isn't just, you know, us four no more bar the door, right? We go home, we pull up the drawbridge, and it's just us. But that's not how we're to think of our families. It's not how we're to think of the church. It's not just me and Jesus, and once in a while we see other people in church. Rather, it's me and all of you and Christ. You are nuclear spiritual family. And by extension, everyone who is a part of our family outside of our nuclear family, wherever they may live, this is the family of God. This is the family of God. Galatians 6.10, Paul calls it not the, the household of God, but the household of faith. We are a group of people who are united by our faith in what God has revealed, namely the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what unites us. We may disagree on how to interpret various texts. We may disagree about whether baptism is by sprinkling, pouring, dunking, or squirting. We may disagree on eschatology. We may disagree on any number of things. But you sit a group of people down in the room. I remember uh, D. James Kennedy. He said uh, he was sitting in a Bible study, kind of a small group setting. People were gathered. It was kind of a religious setting, obviously. And, and he was a guest. He was a guest there, and he stepped in, and, and he said, Hey, everybody, why don't you ans- answer this question? Um, and they were, they were coming, you know, some of them were maybe Bible church, some of them were Baptist church. He was a Presbyterian, so there had to be Presbyterians there. Went around the room and, and he said, answer this question. Um, on what basis do you believe that you will go to heaven when you die? And as they went around the room, everybody said things like this. Um, I believe that I will enter glory when I die because Jesus Christ died for my sins. The next person said something like, I believe that God will receive me into heaven because I've, I've come to him by faith and I've embraced the truth of the gospel. Another one said, well, I didn't have much to do, to do with it. God did the work, but the work was believing in Jesus Christ through the gospel. And around the room they went until they got to one woman who was a Catholic and she said, because I'm good. And that's the distinction She perhaps didn't know the gospel. She didn't believe the gospel. But even though there are people from different denominations within evangelicalism who had different ways of expressing the gospel, it was all the same gospel. And so while we may differ on things, this one thing makes us a family, the family of God, the household of faith, that we believe that Jesus Christ is exactly who God has revealed him to be. He is our Messiah. He is our propitiation. He is our righteousness. He is our only hope. And if it weren't for him dying on the cross as our substitute, we would die for our own sins. And say that however you want. Say it in theological terms. Say it like a child. It is the same. 
This is the household of faith. And if you believe that Jesus is Lord, and that he has saved you by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, then you are part of this family. We are the household of God. And we are, notice what else he says relative to the church, which is the, the church of the living God. Now here again, he's using an Old Testament term that um, distinguishes God, the God, from other lowercase g, gods, right? So I got looking this up. I found all kinds of scriptures and I don't have time to share. Just get on your iPhone or whatever and type in the living God, Old Testament, and you're going to see it everywhere. Um, and especially some of the, the sweetest references are in the Psalms where David talks about his delight in God, the living God. But why the living God? Well, what, would, what else could we say? What would be the opposite of the living God? Well, you might think the dead God? Yes, exactly, the dead God. Now, who would be a dead God? Not Jesus, because he's risen from the dead. But listen, any other God. In the Old Testament, all of their so-called gods were carved out of stone or wood. And then they gilded them with gold and silver and jewels, and they propped them up. And then they came up with sacrificial systems and ways of worship, means of worshiping these rocks and hunks of wood. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah mocks people who take a hunk of wood and they, they cut down a tree and they chop it into chunks and they take one chunk and they split it open and make little pieces to build a fire to cook their food. And with the other piece, they carve it into an image and cover it with gold and bow down to it. And the foolishness of that is the person who is doing this is in charge of all of that. In reality, he's making himself into God. I am God, and I will disclose to my family and to the world what lesser gods there are. But our God is the living God. Idols are lifeless, ugly hunks of wood and stone that men have artificially beautified. They are just the kind of gods that the world can embrace because a lifeless God is something that can be manipulated. A lifeless God is a God who you can, you can make that God have any standards you want him to make because you're in charge. But our God is the living God. It's not the kind of, kind of God that the world loves. It doesn't, it doesn't appeal to the common man in our day. But the God who gave us the scriptures is not a lifeless hunk of wood or stone. He is the living God. As Francis Schaeffer would say, he exists, he's alive, and he is not silent. He has spoken to us. He has given us his word. And he's given us his word in a way that we have easy access to. He's given it to, as Martin Luther said, in a book. We have it all here, and not only in a book, but in a book that is in our language, providentially. God has had it translated so that we and so many others can actually read it for themselves. This is what the living God has done. There is a sense in which the church is the pillar of the truth, and that's what he says here. We are the household of God, which is the church of the living God. He's still speaking of the church here a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, everybody in Ephesus would have understood the terminology here because there was a temple in Ephesus that was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was the temple of Artemis. And, uh, and the temple of Artemis was this fantastic structure. It was, I forget how much bigger than the Parthenon it was, but it was way bigger than the Parthenon and it had pillars holding up the roof. And on the top of the pillar was a capital. And underneath the pillar, there was a foundation. And we know from the New Testament that this is, this is how God describes the church. 
It is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And here he's saying it is like a pillar grounded on or stabilized by the teaching of Jesus and the apostles, but it upholds something. But not a, it's not as though it's upholding a rickety roof that will one day fall down like the temple of Artemis did, but rather he was thinking of a vigorous, triumphant church commending the God to the world by holding up the truth, by holding up the gospel. God has designated the church as the guardian and the proclaimer of the truth. There is a sense in which the church guards the truth by remaining on the lookout for false teachers. That's why I would suggest there's so much discussion about false teaching in this same letter to Timothy. But in reality, the church doesn't really need to protect the truth. Spurgeon said, the truth, the Bible, the word of God is like a lion in a cage. You don't have to defend it. Just let it out and it'll take care of itself. And why are we afraid to let it out? Why are we afraid to let it out? Why are we so unlike Paul who said, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. It is the lion of God unto salvation. And yet we are. We, we tend to be timid in this world. And I get it. There's, there are forces that oppose the truth everywhere we look. But it has always been that way, beloved. Nothing new here. Nothing new here. And we are not, we have, if the, the apostle, I mean, the, uh, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, we don't know who, but he reminds us that you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood, so quit your whining. I don't think that's in the Greek, but. Why? Why are we so afraid of standing on the truth. We live and proclaim the truth. That's who we are as the church. This week I heard Alistair Begg say, we can't allow this postmodern world to back us into a corner because they have given up on the notion of truth. It has had no effect upon the truth. The truth is still the truth. And only the truth can save. And he's right. Yes, it is probably the case that the majority of people that you work with during the week don't believe in absolute truth. And they may make you feel uncomfortable when you live by the convictions that you derive from God's truth. But my friends, the truth, the truth that you have is exactly the truth that they need. And they don't want to hear it. But neither did you. Many of you. When you heard the truth, you were not looking for it. But the Spirit and the Word came, and God's Spirit did what he promised in the book of Ezekiel, the prophetic word of Ezekiel, that one day he would take the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, and you believed. How will they ever be reconciled to God without the truth? How will they ever escape the judgment of eternal hell without the truth? How will they ever... Come to know your Savior, Jesus Christ, unless you and we as the church proclaim the truth. Beloved, this is why in the pulpit ministry at Calvary Bible Church, we don't get sidetracked in other things. And we don't pick and choose what truth of the Bible we're going to proclaim. There's so many good pastors. I love to listen to their preaching but they're very selective in what they preach. And they'll, they'll take a text and they'll exposit that text. Praise God for that. But I think when we gather together, we should let God say what God intended to say without cutting anything out because it may not communicate what we think our congregation needs to hear. My question is, what does God think this congregation needs to hear? And my answer to that question is always, they need to hear the next verse. They need to hear the next paragraph, the next chapter, whatever it is. My kids would say sometimes the next word for an hour. <laughs> Was that an amen I heard at the back of the <laughs> room? <laughs> and so you see, the mystery of truth was solved a very long time ago. And beloved, you already have it. It is in your lap right now. And it is in your heart to the extent that you have hidden it there. 
the truth all men search for, but never find apart from Christ. It's the truth of the person of Jesus, who you know and have the capacity to reveal. And for it was Jesus who said, I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father but through me. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? If you believe it, then it ought to have an effect on the way you relate to the people in your world. And I don't want to take a lot of time on that. If you're in a small group, you're going to discuss that this week. But I will ask you this question. How should that affect the way you relate to your homosexual neighbor or your your drunken coworker or family member? How should, it, how should it affect the way you speak to family at Thanksgiving and Christmas and at weddings and at funerals? How should your possession of the truth of God affect the way you love people? We need to be very, very careful here that we don't do the very thing we're accused of. Listen, you were not called to be a hammer. Amen. And the people in your life were not created as nails. They are people, as lost as they may be, as hostile as they may be, they are people. If you know them, you know them providentially because God has called you to love them in the name of Jesus. And yesterday I had a a man in my home who was a roofer, and uh, I don't even think I told my family this. It's just coming to mind now. And we were sitting at my table, and he had been in the house a year ago. My insurance company said, hey, your time's almost up. You better call your roofer again because they already paid us for the work that, you know, all that. And so he shows up, and him and I have developed a relationship just by phone. He knows I'm a pastor. And he came over, and he's going through the insurance paperwork, and we're sitting there reading it, and we're we're in our kitchen. Everybody who's normally in the house was gone. And uh, we're sitting there, and he got done, and we agreed on whatever we had to agree on. And he said, what else? And I said, um, I have something else. How's your family? And he stopped, and he went, my family? And I said, yeah, just how you doing? How, how's your family? And he started opening up about difficulties with his children. And then he revealed to me that he is LDS, a Mormon. And when I first heard that, kind of a shudder went through me. I thought, I have a Mormon in my house. <laughs> and, and the word of God returned into my mind. And it occurred to me, love him, serve him. Howard Hendricks always used to tell us, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Love him, serve him, don't beat him over the head. Now, I'm not saying that anyone will come to hear the gospel or receive the gospel apart from you speaking the gospel. What I am saying is, give them time. Give them time to trust you. And to know that you love them, even if they walk away and continue in their unbelief, love them. And so many stories of God's faithfulness through people who have loved the truth rejectors around them right into the kingdom. But that's for another sermon. And this all brings us to the second mystery and the primary one here, and that is the mystery of godliness. We saw the mystery of truth now the mystery of godliness. And notice how the two of these go together. The mystery of godliness really is the mystery of the truth because the truth points us to the mystery of godliness as we'll see. Look at verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. The word great here is mega used to be a popular word in the vernacular. Everything was mega. And uh, now everything is awesome, right? And uh, neither are true. 
if everything is awesome, then nothing really matters. And that brings us back to postmodern times, right? <laughs> See, all, all this goes together. Okay, so the mystery of godliness is not just a mystery. It's a mega mystery. It's a super mystery. It's the most important mystery in the world. And always has been. Paul gives us six pithy statements to describe it. Now, if you read the literature on this verse, every commentator will tell you that this, these six statements he puts under here were likely, perhaps probably, the lyrics of an ancient hymn. And we sing hymns like this. There's probably maybe two that we sing that kind of read like this. We say, we believe in God the Father. We believe in, you know, his incarnate birth. We, you know, I'm, I'm butchering the song, but, you know, it, it kind of goes through the gospel. We believe he's ascended into heaven. And it sounds like a creed. It sounds like a confession. And most scholars will say, if it wasn't a hymn, it was definitely a confession. And perhaps a confession that got turned into a hymn before Paul wrote ever, ever wrote this, it, it's, it's written in a way that seems to suggest the assumption that the people he's writing to already know this. And I say that because there's missing words here. He's not giving us sentences. When you type this into word, it always underlines it in green. You know, there's a, there's a grammatical problem here. Where's the verb? Where's the whatever? And... And add to the evidence for that, verse 16, great indeed, we confess. Another indication that this was probably one of the earliest confessions of faith. One of the earliest confessions of faith. If you want your children to have just an overview of everything that we believe, I mean the essential of what we believe relative to the gospel, um, there are confessions that have been written throughout history. And there are catechisms to make it very, very simple. And this is probably the simplest one I know of. And yet, oh, so profound. Oh, so profound. And we're going to use the rest of our time to look at it. Um, the first clue, first clue here we discover about this mystery, this mystery of godliness, is that it is a person. So that's the question. What is the mystery of godliness? He says great or mega indeed is this mystery, this mega mystery of godliness. And then you might expect him to say the mystery of godliness is that God does it monergistically and then dive into a theological treatise. Or you might say, Great is the mystery of godliness. How in the world can a sinner ever become godly? And then you may explain, you know, starting with salvation and, and then the means of grace, reading the word, prayer, um, uh, uh, gathering with the church and all the other means of grace, memorizing scripture, singing uh, scripture songs. So what is the mystery of godliness? When you come to this, this is one of those texts, you go, uh, great indeed is the mystery of godliness. He, did we just change topics? He, and that's the next observation here. We have, we have to understand that the personal pronoun he points us to the resolution of the mystery. Whatever this godliness is, it is a he. It is a person. If you have the King James, it kind of tips the apostle's hand and it says God. Okay, well, that gives the whole thing away. No mystery, right? Um, but more specifically, it's not just God. It's a specific member of the Godhead, namely Jesus. The answer is that if the question we ask is how does the discovery of a person unravel the mega mystery... And in what sense can a person be called godliness, that person? How can that person be called godliness? The answer, of course, is this, that that person is Jesus Christ. 
And it is therefore appropriate to refer to him as godliness because he is the very essence of godliness. The term godliness then is kind of an all-encompassing statement that refers to Christ the person and to the Christian faith as a whole. And it is the great mystery. It is a great mystery for two reasons. It's a great mystery, first of all, to the world, because they are blind to who Jesus is. As long as they reject the truth his, and his role, of, um, his role in redemptive history, he will forever remain a mystery. And people will keep coming out with new angles at trying to make sense out of Jesus. And so without faith, which is a grace of God, it will always be a mystery You'll never see if you don't put the glasses on. And you'll never put the glasses on unless God puts it on your heart to put the glasses on. Second, it's a mystery because Jesus is a mystery to believers because even though we know and love him, the fullness of his glory will always be infinitely greater than we can comprehend. Now, I'm going to be careful here because liberal scholars will say, then we can't know him. And that's not what I'm saying. We can know him. We can know him 10,000 times better than we do. But we're so distracted with our entertainments and our pleasures. And and I mean we, all of us, including me, we're so easily distracted away from knowing Christ that we don't know him very well. But I would suggest if we were to spend every moment of our waking life digging through Scripture to know Christ We would know him sufficiently. We would know him in a growing manner, but we will never know him totally until we see him face to face. And then, even then, I would suggest, as long as we are the creation and he is the creator, the glory of heaven will be, we will continue seeing, savoring, and learning about how glorious he is for eternity. He's not just the living God, he's the eternal God. And uh, seeing how as I am not eternal, and nor is his worship service, I need to get after this. So, so let's look at the statements one at a time. First, and I'm going to give you tags here. First, we have incarnation. We have incarnation. Notice what he says. He was manifest in the flesh. Now, here's a mystery. How can God become man? How can God become man? Moreover, why would he ever want to? If he was God, why would he ever want to become man? I mean, the last thing I want to do is remain in my current condition. I want to be in heaven. I want to be with him. I want to be free of everything in my life that, that makes me less like Christ? Why would he want to come and be where we are when, when our greatest hope is to be where he is? And really, that's the answer to the question in the question. Because there's no way we could ever be where he is to glorify, magnify the glory of his name unless he did what we needed. And so he came. And so Paul says in Galatians 4, 4, and 5, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, to redeem those, to buy back, to purchase those who were under or who were condemned by the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And adoption is appropriate here, not only because everyone who is saved is adopted, but in Galatians, I mean, these were Gentiles. So there was a spiritual adoption that was a little bit different than what was taking place for the Jews. We were being brought into the family that God promised to make when he created Israel. Again, he writes, Paul writes in Philippians 2.6, That though he existed in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped or something to be held onto, but he emptied himself. What's that mean? Doesn't mean he stopped being God, ever. 
It means he laid aside his rights and privileges as God and took on the form of a servant, a slave. Took on the form of a slave. It's doulos here. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is a great mystery. It's a great mystery. Even though we understand it, it's so glorious and so far beyond our human ability to fully grasp. It's a mystery. And and Paul frequently refers to the gospel as a mystery in Colossians and elsewhere. And Jesus says, the mysteries of the kingdom of God are revealed to you to the capacity that we can understand them and embrace them. These are mysteries. And behind it is the even greater one. Behind the, the, uh, the mystery of incarnation is a greater mystery because it points back to the reality that if Jesus is incarnate God, that means before he became a man, he was God. It points back to the Trinity. And then how do you unravel that? I mean, how do, you, how do you take the mystery out of a truth that says within the Godhead there are three united persons without separate existence so completely united as to form one God and that the divine nature subsists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? What? <laughs> and so Jesus is very God of very God. And yet... He was everything. Whatever is essential to being human, he was that too. You say, well, he didn't have sin. Neither did Adam at first. It wasn't essential to his humanity. And yet he was tempted in in every way that you and I are tempted, yet without sin, so that he could become a substitute for us. The mega mystery is that for the salvation of sinners, God became man And because of his great love with which he loved us, he died in our place. In the person of Jesus Christ, beloved, we see God. That's the incarnation. And then secondly, we have vindication. Vindication. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. Vindication certainly must relate to Jesus' claim to be the promised Christ, the Messiah of God. The Jews rejected him at that point and pretty much every other point. Roman soldiers mocked him and murdered him. They even dressed him like a king to mock him. But the Holy Spirit vindicated Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. How did he do that? He did that through his miracles. Again and again, Jesus would say, listen, if you don't believe what I say, at least believe because of what I've done. You know this man has been blind from birth and I just gave him his sight. And the real problem here is not that this man was blind, but that you are blind. Luke tells us that after the resurrection, Jesus was seen again and again and again. This is what the Holy Spirit has done. The Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And it wasn't just a, it wasn't some kind of spiritual resurrection. This was a real bodily resurrection. And people saw him and touched him. He ate with them. And he did it specifically to demonstrate that he, the man, Christ Jesus, is alive. He is risen from the dead. And Luke even goes so far as to remind us that there were many people who saw Jesus. And in fact, in one case, there were 500 people who Luke says were still alive at the writing of the Gospel of Luke. It's almost as if Luke was saying, you go talk to them. The evidences are here. The the, the witnesses are still alive. And there are hundreds of them. Our trust in Jesus Christ, beloved, is not a blind faith. It is based, it's grounded in evidence. Grounded in evidence, many proofs, evidences, incredible witness testimonies substantiated it. Moreover, God himself vindicated Jesus two times. Remember what they were? Early on, Jesus was baptized, and unexpectedly, uh, a voice came out of heaven. 
And what did the father say? We know it was the father because he identifies the one he's talking about. He says, this is my beloved son. And then you remember that on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, and Peter, not knowing what to say, said something silly, which I find not knowing what to say, that's what I do. Just open your mouth and say something. I mean, maybe best just to, better just to be quiet. Lord, why don't we build tabernacles? Let's set up some tents so Moses and Elijah and you can stay here and we can have a camp out. And, and, the, and the cloud came. You remember in Egypt, leaving Egypt? What led them out of Egypt? A cloud. A pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. The cloud appeared. The Shekinah of God appeared. And once again, toward the end of Jesus' ministry now, the Father says, this is my beloved Son. At the baptism, he says, in whom I am well pleased. At the, at the sight of the transfiguration, he said, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. In other words, this man with whom you live is my spokesman. He speaks for me. Listen to him. And so we have vindication. Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit, not only by the Spirit, but by the Father. Third, we have observation. Paul said, seen by angels. He was seen by angels. And throughout Jesus' life, he was seen or visited by and attended by angels. They were there at the announcement of his birth to the shepherds in Bethlehem. They ministered to him in his temptation. They came to him to strengthen him. You remember that at the Garden of Gethsemane? When he's about to face condemnation and death, the angels came and served him. And at the resurrection, you remember when the women got there? What did they see? Depending on the gospel, one angel, two angels. And before they even came, an angel apparently moved away the stone that had sealed the tomb, Matthew 28 says. And then at his ascension, two angels escorted him into heaven, Acts chapter 1. Again and again and again, God's messengers appeared to minister to Jesus. Fourth, we have proclamation. Proclamation, he was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. By the time Paul had written 1 Timothy, the gospel of Jesus Christ was spreading across the Roman Empire like a, like a Texas brush fire. It just couldn't be stopped. And people were being irresistibly drawn to faith in Jesus everywhere. This was not merely a gospel for um, the Jews, although they thought as much at the beginning. It was for the Jews first, and after that, the Greek. Donald Guthrie reminds us, however, that it must never be forgotten that the Hebrew Christ became a curse for the nations. And it was always to be that way. You remember what Jesus said when he cleansed the temple? Um, is not my father's house a house of prayer? And we usually stop there. But that's not where the sentence stops. A prayer, a house of prayer for the nations? It wasn't until much later that the walls were put up, the walls of separation between Jew and Gentile in the temple. It was a house of prayer for all the nations. Anyone who would come to God should come to God. It was always for the nations. The question today is the question of um, question that was relevant in Paul's day. Who will go to the nations to take the gospel to those who do not wish to hear it? Which is all of them. Who will dare to believe that preached, taught, and read, and spoken gospel still has the power to save everyone who believes? This is proclamation. And it's not just what happened after Jesus died, it's what's happening today. For faithful believers who seize the opportunity to love people, to serve people, 
and to proclaim the truth of them. And if you don't have time to love and serve them, give them the truth anyway. And that brings us to affirmation. Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. Believed on in the world. At the, public, at the first public preaching of the gospel, how many people were saved? 3,000. When Peter preached, 3,000 souls believed and were baptized, Acts 2.41. And soon after that, the number grew to 5,000. When Stephen was stoned, the Christians scattered all over the empire and took the gospel with them. And the gospel has been spreading ever since. In some of the most unexpected places, Iran is, sw- is being swept by the gospel. Did you know that? Um, another place is uh, um, Beirut. It's a secular society, but the gospel is thriving there. And in many Mideastern countries now, people are embracing Christ Jesus as their Savior. And not only there, but all through the former Soviet Union. In June, I'll be going to Siberia to meet with some of them. And it's probably going to still be cold. (laughs) But the gospel will transform those who believe. The reason you believe is because someone believed before you and told you what they knew. They took this mega mystery and unfolded it before you in simple terms. And by the power of the Spirit and the Word, by the grace of God, you too were saved. And that brings us to the final one, glorification. Paul concludes, taken up in glory. Acts 1, 9 through 11, we read, when he said these things, and they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heavens, as he went, behold, two men, these are the angels, right, stood by them in white robes, and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heavens? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same manner as you saw him go into heaven. It's not going to be a spiritual return. It's going to be a bodily return. In the same manner, he will return. And right there, we should insert, amen. I've got to teach you where, when we say eschatology, we say Jesus' name, you should say, never mind. (laughs) Paul tells us that God highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. How many knees? Every. Every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth, that means all the angels, even the demonic host will bow. Those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, what's the name? Lord. Lord. He's Lord. To, to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 8 through 11. And so, beloved, these six short statements are a summary of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The mega mystery of all time. The power of God that has transformed this world and will continue transforming this world. And so my only question is this, have you trusted in Jesus? Have you come to the proper conclusion that you have nothing to offer God except your sin? And do you understand, perhaps for the first time, that you don't have to earn his favor? He's already favorably disposed to save those who believe. Will you believe? Will you say to the Lord Jesus, I'm done with me. I keep making a mess. Every time I take control, I ruin things. And even when things turn out rightly, there's still something wrong. I can't make this work. I repent. Lord, take my life. I confess, Jesus, that you are the Son of God. You were the one who was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in the glory. I believe it. Save me. Forgive me. And make me a part of the household of God. Have you ever trusted Christ for salvation? If you have, 
then you are already a part of the household of God, the family of the Lord Jesus. And in the household of God, everyone believes in absolute truth, which is grounded in the mysterious revelation of the incarnate God, who is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. You have given us books to unpack this, whole gospels that take years to exposit through. And you give us the gospel in six short propositions that remind us of your glory and reveal, adequately reveal the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, may you send your spirit to save anyone in this building who is lost today and grant repentance to any believer who has made themselves Lord rather than following you faithfully and living upon your unshakable, absolute, eternal truth. Give us grace, Father, we pray. We understand from your word that while in this life none of us can keep your word and obey your truth perfectly. But you have also promised in the gospel that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us. And so as we battle against our sin, oh, Father, I pray that you would encourage our hearts with grace to remind us that we are accepted in the beloved and there is no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But change us, Lord. Don't allow us as we hear the word again and again, don't allow us to leave unchanged. And so we pray it today in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.